Welcome to the Morris and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 61. I'm Mike Uptograph. And I'm Joshua Klein. And we're continuing our mini-series going through David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship, uh, chapter by chapter. We uh, are getting into the closing chapters of the book here. Two more. Yeah. This one and the next. So Pye is, uh, we're in chapter 10. Uh, This chapter is entitled Critique of On the Nature of Gothic. It's kind of an interesting place that uh, Pi is going here. Yeah, I almost get the sense that, so On the Nature of Gothic is was written by John Ruskin, and he's mentioned Ruskin throughout uh, this book as he's been uh, engaging with these ideas, um, and the arts and crafts movement, Morris. Um, and so now it's, it's almost, it feels like, and he actually mentions that earlier on in his development, he was really helped by Ruskin, yeah. uh, but then he has some critiques. So this book seems to be kind of the, the flowering of his thoughts, kind of critiquing Ruskin. Mm-hmm. And so it seems appropriate, I guess, uh, chapter 10 here, that he's going to have a whole chapter that is specifically critiquing Ruskin's most famous, most influential discussion about workmanship, as uh, as uh, Pi is calling it, this this idea of diversity, uh, his, his book on the nature of uh, Gothic. So he begins talking about the arts and crafts movement, talking about the influence that it's had, uh, and how important it is, therefore, then, and how necessary it is that we examine these ideas. What are the ideas that the arts and crafts movement have, uh, that it has bequeathed to us as artisans, Mm -hmm. that we've inherited and we've taken on? Yeah, and I think, I mean, just the existence of this chapter should should be a proof of how influential the arts and crafts movement was, especially in England. Uh, how much it influenced the way people thought about labor and design and craftsmanship and all those things. And, of course, Ruskin was pretty much the founder of the movement. Uh, Pai says here, the ideas which launched the movement seem to have been Ruskin's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was Ruskin, there was William Morris, but it seems as if Ruskin was the kind of the spark that it, lit the And kindling. Morris says that. Morris yeah. tributes, he says, you know, Ruskin, I'm getting all this from Ruskin. Yep. I have high regard for him, so... Yeah, so he's talking about um, we're we're drawing from a portion of uh, uh, an essay or a chapter in the nature of Gothic. Um, the the chapter is called the nature of Gothic from the stones of Venice, and this is a chapter that we actually uh, did a reprint of a lot of it back in issue ten of Mortis and Tenon. Yeah, the article we we've called it savageness. Yeah, that's Ruskin's term uh, to describe this quality, this kind of. Um, undomesticated quality about the surfaces and how, you know, what that says about the, the freedom of the worker. It's a, it's a famous classic uh, section from Ruskin. And this actually is a lot of what is quoted by Pi that's included in our little excerpt because this really right. kind of gets to the, it's the nut, it's the, the core of a lot of what Ruskin was celebrating in workmanship. Yeah, so Pi starts with, uh, he, he brings out a series of quotes from that chapter. Um, so kind of to summarize them, he's, he's talking about, um, he has this quote from Morris where he says, Ruskin here teaches us is that art is the expression of man's pleasure in labor. Right. So that's like, that's like the core of what Ruskin's saying. So then Ruskin takes a, a bit of time here and Pi quotes him in showing how uh, he believes humans are dehumanized by um, 
the the labor practices of the day and what was going on. Right. So, and, and he specifically says that he says, you know, consider, look around, reader, look around your English room and how fancy it is and all that. And he says to the reader, he says, the perfectnesses, all mm-hmm. the precision you see around you, that that is a sign of slavery in right. our England. And so that's what uh, Ruskin's trying to connect. He's trying to connect the visual perfection that they're seeing. He says, that visualizes slavery, mm-hmm. which is evil, and therefore perfectness, as he puts it, in workmanship is evil. It's a sign of this slavery. Yeah, he says, men were not intended to work with the accuracy of tools and to be precise and perfect in all their actions. If you will have that precision out of them, you must unhumanize them. Right. So he's he gives an example of old cathedrals and they're kind of winsome, kind of crazy at times, stonework. He's saying that's free work. So look at that, contrast that with your your parlor, your study in your mm-hmm. English home. Um, so then he talks about um, the, the degradation of the worker in that kind of very precise, very ornate work. And he's saying, uh, basically his point is that the, uh, the aspect of design has been removed from the hands of the worker. Like mm-hmm. you, they're not designing that, they're basically slaves to a, a design. They right. must work to a perfect standard to perfectly execute that design. And so he's saying that therefore they don't have the freedom and the, uh, as Morris put it, the pleasure in that labor because uh, the, the creativity is not their own. Yeah. So he says, um, uh, Ruskin, he's quoting Ruskin again. He says um, that the demand for perfection is always a misunderstanding of the ends of art, mm-hmm. i.e. pleasure, uh, expressing pleasure in your work. And so he says that uh, these these deficiencies, these irregularities, people say, look at those crazy goblins, that goblin face on the cathedral. That's a deficiency. That's irregularity. That's terrible. He says um, they're not only signs of life, but sources of beauty. Mm-hmm. And so he's contrasting that with the the fluted columns of that the Roman slaves were carving. That right. they're basically he's saying, listen, if if the the artisan was the designer. There's no way it would be so perfect and regular and mm-hmm. static. Uh, when when the artisan gets the is in the driver's seat for design, it gets kind of crazy, mm-hmm. and it's not going to be perfect. It's it's a little bit wild. That's kind of Ruskin's picture. Yep, and this is where Pi differs from. Yep, Pi starts bristling. Yeah, Pi. You can get. You can tell he he starts to get his hackles up. So he throws Ruskin a few bones in this chapter. For example, he says, Ruskin was a man of great insight and a great writer. Uh, later in the chapter, he summarizes some of the things that Ruskin did really well and yeah. that were very valuable. But now he wants to take to task this whole argument that working to a precise degree is enslavement. Mm-hmm. And working to a design not your own is enslavement. He, he's, he, he wants to start uh, undermining that argument. So one of the weaknesses, he says, of Ruskin is that Ruskin prefers rhetoric to the exact analysis of ideas, which, as we've seen, that's Pi's forte, the very exact analysis Super of ideas. Super precise. Yeah. yeah. And so he, he much preferred it, that is rhetoric, to the definition of his terms. And that, that is true of Ruskin, for sure. Right. He will use terms in a very broad way. Like if you've, if you've read the excerpt in issue 10, 
he starts with this, this like bird's eye view flying over architecture from the Mediterranean north up into the mountains and the, the cold frozen wastelands and, and how the landscape has shaped the architecture. And these are all, these are completely unscientific but very beautiful descriptions, mm-hmm. right? And so Pai's saying, yeah, he can say all that, but then he makes these broad moral judgments that don't have a basis. Like right. to, to make the broad moral moral judgments, you need to have some some clear definitions here. Let's let's define our terms. Yeah, and he talks about he says, for example, uh, tedious, repetitive tasks, high regulation. These are the kinds of things that are unhuman, as he puts it. You right. unhumanize them. And so Pi is saying, excuse me, where do you see that? How do you right. prove that idea? And that really seems to be built into Ruskin's whole vision of of uh of workmanship and design and what's beautiful and what's ugly that regulation i.e very controlled work is a sign of slavery so pi summarizes ruskin here Uh, he says three things to make men do tedious repetitive tasks is unchristian high regulation always involves such tasks and must therefore be eliminated and if the workman is allowed to design, he will do rough work and so will eliminate it. So that's that's Pi's summary. I'd say, you know, maybe that's an accurate summary. I know Ruskin goes elsewhere, but that's kind of the crux of his moral argument against uh, overregulation, mm-hmm. right? Um, so Pi starts pointing out some weaknesses. <laughs> he says, uh, Ruskin never had to work for a living. Which is true, and that is a uh, that is kind of a nail in the coffin, you could say, of his argument. In that um, he doesn't actually have personal experience with this kind of thing; he's only perceiving from uh, you could say an ivory tower of sorts. Yeah, and I think what Pi's saying is he's he's inveighing against not uh, hard labor but patient work. Right. So it's the the patient work. Uh, Pi's saying, hey. You know, Ruskin's mixing this up. He's yeah. he's confusing patient work, steady work, uh, working to someone else's design. He's confusing that for, you know, hard labor, slavery. Right. Could, because Ruskin couldn't conceive of somebody wanting or actually enjoying that kind of mm-hmm. work. Uh, tedious, patient, uh, working to someone else's design. He couldn't even envision that. And he says, well, the man never worked for a living. Right. So he really he never experienced can't, he can't be telling us what is or what can and cannot be pleasurable kinds of work right he says uh, he didn't recognize that there is great pleasure in doing highly regulated workmanship so exercising your skills with with care to really um go the extra mile and making something uh very precise i mean there is uh enjoyment in that and Mm -hmm. so pi saying so ruskin he didn't get that um so he summarizes uh, again, so he takes that short summary, and then he makes a bigger summary of Ruskin. Um, but the one part here that I'll call out is he says, uh, he says they will, if required to think, i.e. to design, necessarily be incapable of giving an exact or perfect finish to their work. And such finish is a sl- sign of slavery. The workman is degraded by being required to give it. So he says exact or perfect finish means, in my terminology, high regulation. So that is the part that um, that Pi highlights. He says that uh, 
to say that they will necessarily be incapable of giving perfect finish if they've had to think or design the work is it just doesn't make sense. It just, yeah, it does not follow at all. Yeah. But but Pi says this was apparently a matter of absolute dogma. So uh, the question is like, um, now does this argument, does Ruskin's argument continue to stand even though uh, that portion of the argument is easily demolished by anyone who's done skilled work with their hands? Right, and Pi says, he, you know, he asks, so how is it then that the workman is enslaved uh, by working perfectly from another man's design mm-hmm. that, rather than working from his own? Like, what about that is enslaving? Right. What if you see a design? What if you're replicating, uh, you know, like I like to replicate antique pieces. What about that is, you know, damaging to my soul to say, I'm going to work really hard to replicate something that someone else has done or designed. Right. Uh, Pi saying this is totally missing the mark. Right. So Pi's belief, and this is what he, he says now as we, as we get into the crux of this whole thing, he believes that Ruskin is taking his preferences and mm-hmm. turning them into moral issues. He says, yeah. the truth of it is Ruskin is asserting that if he does not like something, it must therefore be thoroughly evil. Because he liked rough workmanship, high regulation was therefore evil. Because he didn't like an early Victorian room, everything about it, workmanship included, must be evil. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's a tricky place to be at if you find that your opponent is making that sort of argument, that it's personal preferences become uh, the, the moral foundation for your argument. And so, again, um, he goes back to how uh, Ruskin is talking about he says he sees and eloquently condemns the evils which resulted from the industrial practices of his day. So those things are all true and real, that workers were taken advantage of. Workers were abused and, frankly, enslaved, like earning next to nothing for long work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's taking his idealism and, and turning it into a rant in some directions that it probably shouldn't go, is, right. is what Pi is kind of saying. Yeah, and so he he's laying out supplies, then saying, okay, so where do we go from here? Uh, what do, how do we think about this uh, more accurately? And there's this there's this issue of sort of the practicality. So um, he he says, uh, well, actually, the, one of the rules that uh, Ruskin lays out as an exception, he says that we should then therefore never demand an exact finish for its own sake. Mm but only for some practical or noble end. Right, and Ruskin says, wait a minute. Well, Pi says, Pi says, says, wait a minute, hold on a second. He says, hold on, why does something wrong become right, and why does slavery become freedom as soon as it's necessary or practical? Right, as soon as it's a noble end. Right, so he's he's trying to say, like, the way I think of it is, you know, um, Ruskin has an argument, this... This, he's woven together an argument, and Pi sees this little thread hanging. And yeah. He's saying, wait a minute, you're hanging this on... You, the exception is if it's practical, yeah. if it's necessary. And so Pi's taking that thread and yanking it and yeah. to unravel this whole thing, saying, see, I, I think Ruskin is, uh, is building this whole thing on a misunderstanding. He's misattributing. He's taking his aesthetic preferences and then laying that on top of the le- legitimate... Well, the illegitimate it's a legitimate observation that the slavery is going on is bad mm-hmm. but uh what's wrong about what ruskin is doing is taking his love of rough work and saying right making that the 
you know, the criteria for assessing what is slavery and what is not slavery. Yeah. And as, as kind of an aside, I guess, I would say that um, I think in an honest reading of this book, you'd have to say that Pi does the same thing at times. Hmm. At times, he, he says, like in um, where he talks about back on page 64, he says how unrelieved regulation is dangerous. All right. So, I mean, he might be expounding that a little bit to, to say, you know, why and defining his terms better. But uh, it's clear that Pi has some preferences. In the chapter of equivocality, he talks a lot about gloss. Like, a, it sounds like Pi hates glossy surfaces because of how it obscures, how it equivocates, how it confuses and muddies. Um, but it's hard to say from, from reading that. So glossy surfaces should be out because they are a, uh, a damaging and dangerous uh, position to take, a dangerous finish to apply, right? Because it, he says, you know, it makes, he makes these broad statements about how it affects us negatively. Hmm. Well, it definitely affected pie negatively, but there are definitely a lot of people who like glossy surfaces. So, I mean, the question is, is, is pie guilty of this occasionally at times hmm. too? It's and, an interesting question. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, we, we all are guilty of such things, of taking our likes and our dislikes and making them bigger than just personal preferences. Yeah, it's an interesting way to think about it. I guess what I, what I see Pi doing in this book is shifting the focus away from precision as precision to different manners of workmanship mm -hmm. you know so like um so i think what pi would say i think he'd say if if no one is allowed um any free work everything they do is as jigged as possible right right if if, if there's a fence and there's a depth there's everything is just completely set up and so all you are is literally a button pusher right i think pi would probably say that's the problem it's workmanship of certainty is the issue, not precision per se, mm -hmm. because the ideal would be to be precise with the workmanship of risk, right. to be personally engaged in the work and be able to have that skill. And that is where I think he said he's saying, if you see precision, I would say it's enjoyable to work accurately and mm -hmm. precisely with hand tools. I think Pi would say that. But it's, if you get that by just pushing a button, then that's not very pleasurable, probably, right. if that's all you ever do. Um, but I think he's saying, and Ruskin totally misses this because he sees precision and he just says, it's just slavery. Right. I <clears throat> says, not, not, not right, right, hold right, on, right. hold on, not really. Yeah. So he says, uh, presumably Ruskin has realized if he does not make this exception, which is the exception we were just talking about. The practicality. About, yeah. Don't do exactness unless it has some noble end. He's saying he, he must have realized as he's putting that together, oh, I've just condemned like half the population to starvation because they're out of work. Right. Because in his day, the greater part of manufacture was was making very practical things like bricks and tiles and slates and, and all these things uh, to a very rigid uh, degree of accuracy, right? You have molds for everything. You have templates. You, you're making forgings and things like that to very specific standards. And so he's saying, Okay, well, those things have good end, ends, so I guess they're okay. So those right. people can can keep their their vocations. Yeah, and so he says <clears throat> he says Ruskin has no remedy 
to offer the manifest evils of any industry which caters for the practical necessities of life. Right. Ruskin just says, rough, it should be rough because that looks like freeness. And uh, unless it's practical, then I guess you can do that. But mm, there it is. And, yeah. and, and Pi's <laughs> saying, okay, you have no actual solution to yeah. this problem. And I thought, I thought that was a really good point that Pi is saying, yes, there's a problem here, both in the manufacture of what is essential and what is inessential, there is, there is abuse. But he's saying, Pi only can, or sorry, Ruskin can only address that which is inessential because he says, don't make that which is inessential, right? That's the first thing. That's his rule one. Never mm -hmm. encourage the manufacture of any article not absolutely necessary. So he's saying, okay, that gets rid of that abuse. But then he says, if it is essential, it's okay. <laughs> so uh, he, he undermines himself, you know. Yeah. Uh, Ruskin kind of shoots himself in the foot there, which is, what Pi has the problem with, because Pi wants to address these abuses. He wants to see them dealt with. He recognizes that they're a problem, and he just sees Ruskin as not going far enough. To be to be fair to Ruskin, I would say, I think Pi is exactly right that he didn't write in a, um, in a very exact way. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm just saying, like, I would think, you know, as he writes to um, the wealthy Englishman sitting in the parlor, and he says, "Look around your parlor. Yeah. All of this opulence, That's all not of a this decadence, right?" Yeah, but he's saying, "Look around." And so, I think what I would, in defense of Ruskin, I think it's not that Ruskin would say necessarily, "Oh, I don't care about any enslaved work that's for practical purposes." But he's saying, just in his defense, I say he'd probably say, "Well, first, let's start with all the opulence." Yeah, yeah. Let's start there <laughs> let's, first. Do you really need all that stuff? Because this stuff mm -hmm. is being produced in a way that is uh, so exploitative that let's not have all of these fancy, expensive things mm -hmm. at the expense of you know other people. Uh, that's at least a starting place. But he can't go anywhere from there. Right. He says, "But we're stuck." And so I think that's that's what Pi is highlighting is that it's a pretty short. Um, uh, critique that Ruskin can even make. He can say, don't have fancy stuff yep. because of this. Yep. <clears throat> so uh, Pi describes the middle and latter part of the 19th century. He describes it as a time when high regulation in the workmanship of risk was brought to a pitch, which presumably we shall never see again on any scale. Hmm. So just to kind of unpack that, we're talking about uh, workers using... Um, unjigged tools to work to a high degree of precision patterns and designs and things like that like all the embellishment and ornamentation you see on Victorian furniture some of it's like applied carving but it is hand carved carving mm. you know um, and so it was all that ornamentation very often it was made just by hand as we describe it today but um, to a degree of perfection and for the, the finished item to be so perfect and to have a little um, aesthetic inf influence or input by the maker himself of those parts. So, like he didn't have a, a choice in design. He was just making to the pattern, but working with great skill. And so Pi's kind of defending those guys here. He's saying the harm which this chapter did is great. He said, Ruskin did injustice to Victorian workmanship and to the men who produced it, whom he called slaves. And so he's saying, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of undermining their skill, right? He's kind of saying, well, 
you know, th those guys, those are, they're all slaves, but he's saying, but they actually did really nice work. They, mm -hmm. they are highly skilled. Let's not overlook that. And, and the reason it looks so precise and nice is because of their skill. Right. Not yeah. because of the working conditions per <clears throat> se. The, the precision, the success is because of the skill. So it should be right. uh, held up as noble yeah. and good. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, he talks later about how um, so many of those who worked in the arts and craft movement made their objects of beauty because they were trained by that system that Ruskin condemns. Right. Like they were highly skilled because they learned under the, you know, the authority or whatever of the system that he's condemning. And so um, Pi is saying, let's, let's think about this in the bigger picture. Like where did these people learn these skills? How did they come to make these beautiful arts and crafts objects? Well, they were trained in this, this system. Yeah. So he, then he, he kind of shifts, uh, jumping a little bit forward here on 123. He says um, that a workman who will not be judged by his work is contemptible, <laughs> right? So uh, there's no... Um, if anyone's saying, oh, well, don't judge me by this work, there's some something external, something outside of it that really you can assess this is good work or bad work. He's saying, no, 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 look at the result. Are you doing, are you doing successful work? He, uh, he tells a story. He says, it's told of a potter. Yeah. That when reproached about a teapot, he said, but of course it leaks. It's handmade. <laughs> and Pi is like, oh my That's goodness. Great. This yeah. is exactly what's wrong with the yeah. crafts today is that people have this idea that, uh, of course, it's going to be terrible and not perform its function. Right. Uh, because, yeah, I made it by hand. And I think that's what he is, uh, he's really pushing against saying, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. We're talking about this spectrum of, uh, of the, the skilled certainty side, but the other side of this is skill. Yeah. You want to be able to work accurately. That's a sign of uh, artisanal maturation yeah. <laughs> is the yeah. skill that you're developing. And that is something that's praiseworthy. It's, it is something that should be celebrated. Yeah, I think he's saying kind of the logical end of, of Ruskin's argument is that so everything will be made by hand to a low degree of to a very rough degree. Like that's what Ruskin praised. He praised yeah. roughness. And so the teapot will leak and the roof will leak and the furniture will not necessarily be, I mean, who knows if it's, it'll fall apart. Probably not, but it won't be, there will be no refinement. Mm -hmm. And so he's saying kind of logically, that's how you have to go here. Cause that's the freest work possible, right? Mm -hmm. According to Ruskin, it's made so freely that our standards fall. Right. And so he, he's trying to push against that because uh, if, if you know Pi's work, he loved making beautiful ornate things and he was very good at it and got a lot of satisfaction out of it. And so he's saying, well, this would be excluded, right? Right. Uh, Ruskin would not have room for this kind of work. And, and he, you know, several times in this chapter, he says that, you know, he talks about the, the pleasure that someone gets out mm -hmm. of working uh, to precision, yeah. out of using tools to, to make something precisely, that it is a pleasurable experience. Yeah. So there are two questions that he kind of lays out at the end of this chapter. Um, he says that uh, the two questions that must be asked in this, he says, uh, in what one, in what circumstances do men actually take pleasure in their work? Yeah. How does someone enjoy their work? And then secondly, uh, what did Ruskin get right? Yeah. <laughs> what did he positively contribute to this this 
thought. Yeah. So the first one is the, the pleasure in work. Yeah, pleasure in work, he says, depends on not being overdriven or overdriving oneself because of poverty. Given a reasonable wage, a reasonable master, and reasonable hours, some people like work, which is mindless, repetitive, and monotonous, and entirely devoid of risk. Mm -hmm. He says then, but whether that liking can ever amount to pleasure is debatable. So he's saying, yes, like there's a place for this if the, if the system is is fairly treating a worker. If, if conditions are good, uh, even monotonous work can be... Um, he says it's some people like it whether it's pleasure that's another thing i, I think that's an interesting thing i yeah. would want to say uh, wait hold if you on like it yeah yeah because he, he is kind of saying well you know what is pleasure right uh if you you like being able to disengage your brain and then just kind of like he's saying this you know uh totally mindless repetitive monotonous some people like that mm -hmm. is that the same thing as satisfaction yeah as, Pleasure, and I think that pie kind of puts a little asterisk. You know, yeah. it's almost like he's saying, "Well, that's kind of debatable whether that's truly deeply satisfying, or if it's just, <clears throat> you know, enjoyable, or you like it, you don't mind it." Yeah. Um, and I just think about all the times that I've, you know, scraping the paint on a house or right. doing outside work and got earbuds in, and I'm just listening to a podcast or, uh, you know, a lecture or something, and I, I like the work. Because I can do something else. Right. Because I can listen to something yep. else. Now, does that mean that work is inherently satisfying and pleasurable? Yeah. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. I mean, I found in my days at the boatyard, I would spend days sometimes in a Tyvek suit with the respirator and, and headphones and earbuds listening to music or podcasts while grinding the bottom of a boat. Like days, right? And, okay, so the work was not stimulating it wasn't strenuous it was kind of in the middle it was what it was but after a few days you start to go crazy <laughs> you're like i feel like i'm trapped inside only my head mm -hmm. like the work itself is one thing but so i i get that point um but there's also something very freeing about just having your work handed to you and then you just do it yeah i mean i think for me like in my example of scraping paint on the side of a house listening to lectures the scraping of the paint was not that engaging. Right. It was not that stimulating or interesting. Because after, you know, after about 20 minutes, you're like, okay, I think I've seen pretty much all the variations I'm going to find in this particular task. And so every hour <laughs> proceeding from there is sort of right. just more of the same. So I listened to a lecture. Yeah. <laughs> I, I needed stimulation. I needed an engagement. So I, I had to find it outside of the task at hand. And so that, you know, that's great. That's yeah. a handy thing. But I think that I think is what is helpful when Pi is talking about this. He's not just saying, well, some people, uh, you know, they really like just absolute mindless, monotonous work that they really take, take deep satisfaction in being a button pusher. Right. That's, he's not saying that. He's right. saying some people can get along just fine with it. Right. And I'm gonna as long as they get a fair wage and all this. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, <clears throat> he says that there can be a certain pleasure, so he uses that word again, in finding that one's judgment is being exercised only half consciously and in letting the process continue. So he, he talks about sawing and chopping. You can, you can go on sawing and chopping uh, half consciously because your skill is taking over. 
mm-hmm. like your your ability, your muscle memory. You're doing the process half unconsciously, kind of rotely. Your mind is halfway there, but there's a pleasure in that too that he identifies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hands appear to do it on their own without referring to the head. And so uh, that's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, when you get to that point, it, it, it almost sounds like he's describing like the flow state that we talk about. Yeah, right. Or, or you're just in the groove and you're doing it and you're you're moving fast and you're whistling a tune and mm-hmm. um, your skills are meeting the challenge and none are exceeding the other and you're just good to go. And yeah. that, that sounds like what he's describing there. Um, <clears throat> so then he talks about, uh, he, here's this quote I just have to pull out because he's quoting Ruskin. We love quoting Ruskin on this too. He says, there are admittedly many things in the workmanship of risk which are to be achieved only, as Ruskin said, by patience and sandpaper. And the satisfaction one gets from them is mainly in seeing the finished job. Right, exactly. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot you can do. You can perfect a lot with sandpaper instead of skill. Sandpaper can can cover for Patience it. and sandpaper, yeah, yeah. just wear away slowly. Um, <clears throat> so then he goes down into talking about so what did what did Ruskin get right right what mm-hmm. what did he contribute to the conversation because Ruskin many consider him to be maybe the most important English thinker of the 19th century or up there he inspired so many people so many different social movements you can't say he was unimportant uh, even if you got things wrong or completely times. wacky right yeah he there were real movements of positive change that took place because of ruskin yeah and i i mean you get the sense when you're reading through i mean it's interesting you read through this book and you feel like he's just really down on on ruskin the whole time and then you get to this chapter and he kind of says listen i've been really influenced by this it's been helpful to me and he's a great writer and he's got some great insights and so then you realize okay actually what he's doing is i think this book is refining what Ruskin started with. Mm-hmm. Ruskin had the seed of an idea and he observes some things that were accurate and Pi is saying, mm, let's refine that. You're you're right, you're on a right track, but you've you deviated pretty quick. Let's refine that so we can actually do what you're trying to do uh, by, you know, critiquing workmanship, critiquing design, thinking about those, you know, pleasure in work. Let's refine that assessment, be more precise so that we can really hit the nail on the head and not, Mm -hmm. you know, dent the board. Yeah, exactly. So he has three specific ideas that he's, he says, uh, Ruskin really brought to the table. Yeah. uh, He said, before Japanese aesthetics were known in the West, Ruskin saw that free and rough workmanship have aesthetic qualities, which are unique. So, I mean, that is absolutely true. Ruskin was saying these things kind of counter to the culture that was moving towards this this perfection, this Victorian, right. you know, glass and iron and polished surfaces thing. He's saying, well, no, let's look at the beauty of the rough. This yeah. is like the the Japanese ideal of bringing out the imperfections to put an exclamation mark on the beauty of the object, you know, highlight them. Mm-hmm. Um, repairs are beautiful, right, if done well, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So Ruskin was, was big on that, which was very novel in the West at that yeah, time. Yeah, and it was important. It was important to be able to see the the value in the old cathedrals. Yeah. They don't just, right. we don't you know, let them crumble Let's and replace them. Bulldoze those and put up some new yeah. shining example of modernity. Yeah. Uh, and it says, uh, he also saw that in manufacture and building, there's a domain of aesthetic qualities which are beyond the control of design and insisted that architects with drawing boards 
could never have made Venice what it was. Yeah, so that's the second observation, mm -hmm. is that uh, there's something about the aesthetic quality of something that a designer can't touch. Right. No one can draw that. And this is, you know, this is his whole um, diversity thing and the surface qualities and subtle irregularities that Pai's been talking about. He's saying, Ruskin saw it. He saw it a while back and he said, there's something about design that is actually in the hands of the workman, not the designer. Yep. And then thirdly, he just talks about the fact that uh, Ruskin understood the quality of the things that he's termed diversity. Yep. Understood its importance in the design of ornament, though not in workmanship. So, uh, right, diversity in ornament, not in workmanship. Um, and he's saying, yes, that these, are, these are really important things that Ruskin brought out. And he says, the intrinsic importance of these ideas is not diminished by the fact that so much rubbish has derived from illegitimate extensions of them. Right. I think that's an important phrase there. He's saying a lot has come from Ruskin that does not necessarily logically follow Ruskin. I think that that is a, a kind way of closing this chapter, that yeah. some of the bad stuff that came about, some of the, the, the uh, garbage handcrafts, you could say, and some of the, the fake mass-manufactured stuff made to look like handcraft that came out of the arts and crafts movement, he says... Those do not follow Ruskin's ideals. They don't necessarily logically follow. They're mm -hmm. illegitimate extensions of his ideas. And so um, he wants to maintain that Ruskin's, the core here that he lays out, the important ideas um, are very valuable and that uh, people drifting from them should not be blamed on Ruskin. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good chapter. Uh, we have one more chapter uh, to come and then we'll be finishing up this book. Uh, so we thank you again uh, for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. Uh, if you haven't already, you should subscribe so you don't miss any of the episodes. Uh, if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below. And make sure you leave a review for our podcast yeah. and give us a five-star <laughs> rating. Yeah, or six. Right? Or six, yeah, that's <laughs> it. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.